Welcome to another edition of This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy, and cybersecurity. I'm Arj, and I'm joined again by Jordan. Hey, Jordan, how's it going? Going well, thanks, Arj. Looking forward to a good chat. Yeah, me too. Me too, and there's a few interesting topics we've got this week. So we're going to be chatting about uh, Meta's latest attempts at content moderation, particularly on, on the Facebook platform. That's going to be a good one. And then we'll also tap into some recent developments over the last week or so about you know a more holistic approach to policymaking and regulation regarding tech platforms in Australia. But first, uh, I wanted to tap into this story I saw about Clearview AI's latest attempts to promote the use of its controversial facial recognition technology. Do you want to take us through that one? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good one to start on. So there's a Reuters story um, this week about Ukraine's defense ministry using Clearview AI's facial recognition technology. Apparently, this followed an offer from Clearview to provide free access to their tool. You know, you recall Clearview's uh, fairly controversial company that's basically built a facial recognition database based on 10 plus billion photos scraped from social media sites and other public sources. So you can input a photo and they'll point you to, according to their algorithm, matches against publicly available photographs. So you can identify the person from their Facebook account or Russian social media account. So important to note, Clearview's been widely criticized globally about this practice and privacy implications. They've been found to be in breach of privacy legislation in a whole bunch of jurisdictions, Australia, UK, Italy, Canada, and others. The OAIC in Australia, the Information Commissioner's Office, recently found the Australian Federal Police also in breach of the Privacy Act for trialling Clearview software without proper privacy assessments or safeguards in place. So it's a really controversial technology. But yeah, the story is that they're inserting themselves into wartime Ukraine to help Ukrainian Defence Ministry identify Russian soldiers and spies. I imagine. Arch, what were your thoughts on that? I found it really hard not to see it as a PR move, really. I mean, the detail about this being an offer that has been made to the Ukraine Defence Ministry has come out of a letter that has been written by the chief executive of Clearview AI and sent off to Kiev. That's an internal letter that Reuters has received a copy of. I wonder who provided them with the copy, right? I wonder who provided them with the copy. And the only person commenting in the story is a guy called Lee Wolofsky, who is an advisor to Clearview. And the, the Ukraine Defense Ministry have not commented on the specific story. So that immediately, to me, sounds a bit sus. But then just generally, because of the, I guess, the history of what you described, which is a raft of kind of negative rulings against Clearview AI has brought some taint to the company and its reputation. And so, yeah, why not insert yourself into a situation like the war and say, we're going to help the good side. You know, we're going to be on the side of the good and we're going to really support that effort to good ends. Seems like a natural continuation on how they have sought to promote their tech generally. Like at first it was, you can identify people involved in child exploitation. And next it was, you know, you can detect terrorists. And so, you know, this seems like a natural continuation of this problematic technology, trying to find a kind of nice veneer and a nice kind of wrapper And there's a bit of a playbook there, I think. You know, you've got this technology, you sort of paint it up as being able to solve a particular problem that is something that genuinely troubles and challenges society. So, you know, child exploitation, terrorism, now the war, something we really want to see resolved. And, you know, hey, I've got the magic solution for it. And that diverts attention away from the inherent failings or problems with the technology itself. 
Uh, and anyone that dares to sort of point those out can very be easily dismissed as, well, what, aren't you against stopping child exploitation? Are you with the terrorists? So, you know, there, there is a real sort of skepticism that naturally comes with what they're doing. And I, and I really felt like, given the history, it's a bit of sort of using the war to launder their reputation. Yeah, that was my read as well. It is just straight out of that tech startup playbook, right? Like, as you say, link your technology to solving a massive and inarguable problem. And then anyone who points out the failures, they're they're on the side of the bad guys. To that point of not being taken up by the cause that they're proposing to fix and still looking critically, I think it's really important to recognize that, as we've talked about before, this facial recognition stuff it's not the magic bullet solution that it's often described as you know it doesn't work perfectly in fact it doesn't even work super reliably and it works particularly poorly for women and minorities and if it's being deployed by a wartime government in a war zone there's not going to be any safeguards or approvals or consideration about how it could have negative impacts and it could have catastrophic consequences for individuals who are misidentified right like we we talked just last week about how misidentification by facial recognition in a law enforcement context can have really significant personal harms right guys getting arrested in the front lawn in front of their daughters or being held for days for no good reason. One can only imagine the potential harms to individuals if this flawed facial recognition technology is being employed at a military checkpoint to identify supposed Russian spies. You know, it could well lead to deaths, could well lead to wrongful imprisonment. Just a worrying story on on multiple counts, right? And and I think those points are are really important because I think it's because the, the technology itself is problematic as why we feel the cynicism about them injecting themselves into this broader story around the war. But um, I wanted to talk uh, about another story, but it's also sort of tied into the broader global conflict that's going on. It's about Facebook adjusting its hate speech policy in the context of what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, This is a real bizarre one for me. Like, I really struggled to wrap my head around what they were trying to do. Basically, what happened was... Meta suddenly announced that they would now allow Facebook and Instagram users in some countries to call for violence against Russians and Russian soldiers. To quote exactly what they said, as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we have temporarily made allowances for forms of political expression that would normally violate our rules, like violent speech, such as death to the Russian invaders. We still won't allow credible calls for violence against Russian civilians. So the calls for the death of the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, or the Belarusian president, Alexander Lukashenko, would be allowed. But they were sort of at pains to say that, you know, those calls couldn't have two indicators of credibility like the locational method. So this is a very odd thing where it really felt like they were tying themselves in knots around sort of like you can call for violence as long as you don't say these two extra things. The specificity of those rules I find really interesting, and I think it's a product of having to come to rules that can be deployed by a labour hire firm content moderator who's you know, just clicking through tickets, right? It's a kind of interesting exercise of boiling down the complexities of speech into these rules that some outsourced contractor can apply a million times a day. Yeah, and it it just becomes such a cumbersome exercise. And, And so you ended up with headlines like Facebook changes rules to allow for the death of Russians. And unsurprisingly, Russia responded quite uh 
emotionally and has launched a criminal case which is seeking to designate Meta as an extremist organization, which then required Meta to come out and try to clarify what they were saying. So they were like, well, we don't support calls for the death of the head of state. That's not what we're trying to say. And they were trying to explain that, you know, without making any change at all, it would be difficult for people to sort of voice opposition to the Russian invasion. So they were really sort of stuck in this attempt to try to allow, you know, certain forms of opposition, but fall short of calls for violence. And I, like I said, I just thought it was a bizarre story and it, it was an example of this big platform that is so well resourced and so, you know, dominant in every form of our life seemingly just tying itself up in knots. That's such an interesting example of just how difficult the content moderation problem is. For Facebook especially, or all of these online platforms that want to position themselves as a global public square that are so important to popular discourse, they do need to have a set of rules that are applied that define what a speech is and isn't allowed. And, you know, in the Ukrainian context, I can, like, I have some sympathy for that, right? Like, your country's being invaded, you know, hundreds of civilian deaths, all of this damage. It's not unreasonable as a Ukrainian to call for the death of the, the Russian invaders. It's probably not even unreasonable for Ukrainians to call for the death of Vladimir Putin, you know. As a citizen of a country being invaded, those are pretty reasonable things to say and things to call for. And Facebook has to make a decision on whether they're silencing that or whether they're supporting calls for the assassination of a head of state by carrying those statements. So, you know, it puts them in a really difficult position. Similar kinds of problems have arisen in other contexts for Facebook around photos and videos of really graphic violence. There were some controversies a few years ago in South America, I think in Mexico, around gang violence and videos of gang violence that was a really critical political issue at the time. But, you know, you can't show the aftermath of a shootout on Facebook because it's too graphically violent. And so there was this real sense of Facebook applying policies that are totally reasonable, say, in Australia or in the US about graphic violence that were inappropriate in this particular extreme political or wartime situation. And they're running into the same kinds of problems here with Ukraine. So it's been funny watching them tie themselves in knots, but it's a, it's such an incredibly difficult problem. The other worry about this is that fundamentally there's one guy making the decision, right? Facebook is such a core part of our public discourse and all of these decisions about what people can and can't speak about are ultimately made by one dude who's who's just totally unaccountable, no way of ousting or replacing him, no way of changing the policy if he doesn't agree with you, which is the more fundamental concern on this stuff, I think. And it also ties into something we've talked about previously, which is we're looking at this problem in the context of it being Facebook and Meta, but again, like what, what happens a decade from now in if the dominant social media platforms are... TikTok or WeChat, and they're the ones now making these decisions about what can and can't be said. It continues to be a real tough public policy challenge, and it's obviously a tough operational challenge for, for Facebook. Yeah, for sure. I think our next story is related to that point. The next story is a local Australian one around Meta's promises to implement protection around the coming Australian federal election. So Meta's announced plans to increase third-party fact-checkers and public awareness as part of what they're describing as its most comprehensive Australian election protection. The commitments 
include new third-party fact-checking partnership with RMIT, Melbourne University, the Associated Press, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but Agence France Press, reviewing and rating the accuracy of content. The idea being that if we've got fact-checkers around false claims, we can inform users, people can make their own decision, and content that's determined to be false will not necessarily be removed by Facebook, but they will um, you know, put limits on how much it can be distributed by the algorithm. Meta will also partner on awareness campaigns to help users spot fake news, understand the dangers of sharing it, publish real-time data on election communication and continued transparency on political advertising campaigns. So they say this is a package of actions that will help secure the Australian election from misinformation. I find this one really bizarre because it's clearly a case of Meta treating the symptom even though they are responsible for the sort of root cause. And it's wonderful that, you know, they're going to invest in awareness campaigns and publish more data. And But the reason the misinformation exists in the first place is because of the, fundamentally the underlying platform and what it prioritizes and what it emphasizes. It's like someone constantly feeding you I don't know, spoiled food over and over again. And then, you know, says, but guess what? I've got like a ready supply of antacid for you. I've upped my kind of purchase of antacid. I'm going to play soothing music for you to deal with your, you know, tummy upset, but I'm going to keep feeding you the spoiled food. That's really what it comes down to. I think often with, with the platforms is like, you know, you keep doing these things around the edges to treat the symptoms and around misinformation or better labeling or whatever it is. But, at the core, the reason this happens is because you have a business model that wants to promote engagement and doesn't care about the accuracy of the content as much as you care about the engagement. You want things to go viral, and once they've gone viral, then now you try to spin back and wind back uh, the amount of harm that's done by you know trying to promote more awareness, but you can't. And that's been some of the criticisms that have come out in response to sort of Facebook saying, here's what we're doing for the Australian election. We had kind of groups like Reset Australia and the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology essentially saying, well, you know, this is a misframing of the debate. It's not about fact-checking. It's not about awareness. We need to get to the underlying kind of toxic uh, business model. And so I think that's the core issue. And we're seeing that more broadly. We're seeing calls in the US, the UK, Australia around, like, tell us about your algorithm. We need to understand that you need to be more open. That will help us kind of diagnose what's actually going on. Yeah, there's really interesting response in the US to the Capitol riots incident, I suppose, which was not just awareness and transparency and fact-checking, but to try to tamp down the virality, you know, introduce in the algorithms and the fundamental operation of the platform to introduce some friction to sharing and the virality of some of these posts, which I think is much more directed at, like, addressing the core issue of the dynamics of rewarding extreme kinds of content. So I think there's some interesting case study there on, you know, actually changing the algorithm to have the effects as well as, you know, just this transparency. Let's move on to some new developments in, you know, how governments and regulators are thinking about reining in some of these excesses around tech platforms and thinking about tech policy. We saw a couple of linked developments during the week about a sort of more holistic approach to these challenges. One was calls for what's been called a council of technology regulators. So this is essentially a kind of council that can kind of coordinate technology policy making in Australia. We saw the call come from 
uh, the Labour opposition during the week, but it's also a call that the Australian Information Industry Association has made. And the, the argument essentially is that, you know, we need to stop this very ad hoc, very knee-jerk and siloed approach to tech policy making and, you know, have something that is much more kind of holistic. And then slightly related to that, a bunch of the regulators who operate in this space have gotten together and announced that they're forming an alliance called uh, DPREG, which is Digital Platform Regulators Forum. So the group includes the Australian Communication and Media Authority, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner and the Office of the eSafety Commissioner. So some very interesting developments. At their heart, there is a similarity. They're both recognising that technology policy overlaps a few different domains and there is a need to think about it more holistically uh, but there are some differences between the two initiatives. So if we start with the Alliance of the Regulators, which is DP Reg, that at this stage looks like it's primarily a sort of operational alliance. So you've got basically the regulators coming together every two months and you know they're going to sort of swap some stories and share information and discuss issues collectively. Operationally, they might help each other out with things like secondments uh, and kind of discuss enforcement approaches and really just think about kind of the way they operationally respond to the challenges they face as regulators, but in a more cohesive and collective way. Whereas the Council of Technology Regulators is a little bit broader than that. It's kind of more about the actual sort of approach to policy and regulation in a much more holistic and broad way. So all of those acts, all of those new pieces of legislation would be far less siloed. I think there's a critical need for more coordination on the tech policy front, like such a broad range of issues and interests and concerns. You know, we often talked in the last few weeks about the ACCC with their competition and consumer lens tackling privacy problems, but then the importance of uh, human rights or a broader privacy approach to these problems. We were just talking about the impact of social media platforms on public discourse and freedom of speech. We've often talked about the news media bargaining code, which is, again, around freedom of speech. There's a constant debate about cybersecurity, national security, critical infrastructure, the importance of encryption and how that balances out against like e-safety and law enforcement and identifying child exploitation. All of these concerns play out in this tech policy sphere, but they all sit in the responsibilities of different government departments or agencies or regulators that getting dealt with through isolated legislative agendas from these different areas. You know, each department's focused on its own objectives. And the result is this fragmented approach to regulation and this stream of legislative proposals and submissions and consultations, often trying to deal with the same issue from slightly different directions. The coverage in Innovation Oz from Den and Sadler referred to Google complaining that they're currently participating in nine separate regulatory proposals. Meta's participated in 18 major inquiries or consultations in the last three years. Um, there are five parallel age verification schemes under development 
development from four different departments and regulators. I mean, I could go on. I've got a really long list right in front of me, right? Electronic surveillance, the anti-trolling bill, the parliamentary inquiry on social media and online safety. There was the online safety bill run by the Department of Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Communications. There's basic online safety expectations consultation run from the same department. There's consultations on age verification, as I've mentioned. There's the Privacy Act review, the Online Privacy Act review, digital identity draft legislation from the Digital Transformation Agency, more parliamentary inquiries on prohibitions on the sharing of abhorrent violent material. There's a Productivity Commission inquiry on the right to repair. There's consumer data right consultations. There's the ACCC's ongoing digital platforms inquiry. You're going to need to take a breath, I think. That's, that's one hell of a list. It's just absurd, right? And that's not all of them. Yeah. For one, it's, I think, indicative of how, like how pervasive technology is it's in all of these different domains. And it's kind of changing the way we're doing things. And so there needs to be a policy response but up until now that policy response is coming from you know wherever it hits the wall so if it hits the wall in a you know in transport well then then we're going to get like the online safety bill out of department of infrastructure transport and regional development or if, if one particular agency is, is struggling with fraud and identity issues well maybe there might be a digital identity bill spawning up there but really these are things that because they're pervasive need to be solved in a much more co- collective consistent way yeah they touch every part of life but they're not neatly contained to every part of life they, they touch everything else as well so there is a critical need i think for central policy coordination and and problem solving that transcends particular areas of law, right? The answer isn't just competition and consumer protection. It isn't just human rights. It isn't just e-safety. You know, you, you need to bring all of these together and it's some kind of amalgamation of those things. The one kind of call that I would make is that just a continued sort of focus purely on digital platforms. Um, so, for example, the alliance of the regulators is called dp reg which is the digital platform regulators alliance and you know digital platforms like meta like twitter um and Google are obviously incredibly dominant in the way that we do anything online. And so they deserve kind of more focus. But I also think that like some of these issues that we want these regulators to be staring into don't only apply to digital platforms. They apply to how technology is used in, you know, within different industry contexts, how data is shared, you know, things like the CDR, which might just be sort of you know, data being exchanged by banks or by energy providers and not necessarily as heavily focused around digital platforms like Meta or like Facebook or Twitter or Google. That was the one thing I just, you know, felt like the framing of that regulators alliance might be a bit narrow. Yeah, for sure. So wrapping up, I suppose it's been a good chat. We've covered some serious ground from laundering Clearview AI's reputation in Ukraine to freedom of speech in times of war to election content moderation and the future of tech policy coordination in Australia. As every week, it's a good mix. It's a great mix. There's always lots going on and um, I'm sure there will be next time. Look forward to it. Talk to you again next week. Talk to you next time.